Could I just thank all of you for coming tonight? It's lovely to see you. And for you who are visiting with us, we do bid you warmly welcome here to our retired minister's testimony week. And uh, wherever you have travelled from, uh, we are really thrilled that you're here present with us tonight. And I see a number of churches represented. I'm not going to go around and name them all, uh, but we uh, really appreciate you coming. We all want to especially thank uh, Dr. Alan Kearns and his wife Joan for coming tonight. And we're looking forward to the ministry of the Lord's servant. And I think this is his, well, it'll be his first time in the new church building. And uh, we're really uh, been excited and looking to the Lord uh, for the Lord helping him as he shares a testimony with us of how the Lord saved him and maybe a few insights into how he sees where uh, we need to be in the future uh, with the Lord. Um, we, we are especially delighted tonight to uh, welcome our brother Gordon. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, Gordon is only one member of the Revival Trio, and you're looking around, well, where's the rest? Uh, well, some couldn't make it tonight, but Gordon faithfully uh, said, well, well, I'm going to go, and we appreciate that uh, very much. Now, just before Gordon comes, could I apologize for uh, Mrs. McGill? Uh, she wasn't able uh, to make it last night, and you're going to say, well, why? And uh, suppose maybe uh, you're, you're wondering why, uh, and the, the answer is, she just completely forgot. She was so busy all day yesterday. She was home late from work. And she phoned her mother and said, I'll not be able to go to the prayer meeting tonight in the martyr. She, she, she took the Wednesday night book and she says, I don't normally sing on a Wednesday night. It's my prayer meeting night and I, I'd like to go to the prayer meeting. But because it was me that asked her and because she likes me, because you would understand why, a nice young fellow like myself, um, then she, she consented to come. But it just went, comp- and this was, Whenever I spoke to her and confirmed it a few weeks ago, it just came completely out of her mind. So she does send her apologies, and uh, she will come at a later time, uh, and um, no doubt she'll apologize in person. But we're especially glad to have Brother Gordon, and he's going to minister to us a couple of pieces. Thank you. I'm overall to all these reverend doctors. Did you notice them all in? But I've got my BA. I've got my MA, I've got my DD, I've got my VC, and I've got my PhD. My BA, I'm born again. My MA, I'm massively altered. My DD, I'm a devil disturber. My VC, I've got victory in Christ. And if any of you are on Facebook, you'll see all the prospective counselors at the moment. I think they've all got their PhD. They've always got photographs behind the pothole from a pothole dodger as well, so... But most of all, I'm born again. Reading in the Bible, book of John, in chapter 3, is a story of a man who's looking good like you and me, saying, what must I do to be free from my sin? Jesus answered, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Question Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered, saying, Verily I say unto thee, 
four days we're doing a mission in down the Ronda Valley, a little town called Enishir. And they loved this little gospel song. I really like country gospel. I do a country gospel radio program. It's all country gospel songs. And that's where I learned them all. I think I just love them because everyone has a story. I remember the day when I was bent low with the burden of sin and strife Then Jesus came in and rescued me He gave me a brand new life And now as I thank Him day after day For washing my sins all away It seems I can almost hear the voice Of the blessed Saviour say what sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they have all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. When my place becomes weak, it's then I can speak to the Savior who's with me each day. Oh, Father, forgive me, hear my plea. And he washes my sins all away Each time that I bow to give him thanks For removing my sin and my stain He cannot recall what I'm talking about His answer is always the same What sin are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore From the book of life they've all been torn out I don't remember them anymore What sin are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore From the book of life they've all been torn out I don't remember them anymore No, I don't remember them anymore Those two lovely pieces reminding us about being born again and that second piece 
What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. And you know, it's a wonderful thing in life's journey to know that your sins are forgiven, to know that you have a full and a free and forever pardon. All your sins, past, present, and future, are under the blood. And God has made a promise. Your sins and iniquities, I'll remember no more. And you know, if you have the knowledge of sins forgiven, you can go to bed and put your head in the pillow and you can sleep well. Sleep the sleep of the just and believe and rejoice. It's well with your soul. If anymore. And the road is rough and long Sometimes my feet get weary and so sore But a brighter day is coming Soon I'll step on heaven's shore And I won't have to worry anymore I won't have when I reach the other shore All my troubles will be over And I'll rest forevermore My eyes will be on Jesus And my heart will be aglow And I won't have to worry anymore is over and I've said my last goodbye I'm gonna see my Savior standing by the door then I'll hear him say you're welcome all your cares are left behind and I won't have to worry anymore I won't to worry when I reach the other shore all my troubles will be over and I'll rest forevermore my eyes will be on Jesus and my heart will be aglow and I won't have to worry anymore I won't to worry when I reach the other shore all my troubles will be over and I'll rest forevermore my eyes will be on Jesus and my heart will be aglow and I won't have to worry no I won't have to worry I won't Not tremendous. You've learned something tonight. If you're born of the Spirit and your sins are forgiven, you've got a full and free pardon, and you're ready for heaven at home, you don't have to worry about anything because um, you're, you're 
ready uh, to uh, meet the king. Thank you, Gordon, for coming. Uh, we'll send greetings to your brethren who were absent tonight, really enjoyed your ministry. And we're going to ask Dr. Kearns now to come and share his testimony, read the word of God, and preach to us and give us a few pointers in good, sound theology. Amen. God bless you. That's a mouthful, isn't it? You all stand for your breakfast? <laughs> If I was to do the half of what this man says I'm supposed to do tonight, uh, we would be here for breakfast, but uh, I will ignore most of what he said I'm to do because uh, it would be much too much. Uh, I must say I'm surprised to see the empty seats because Stanley Barnes told me that place is going to be full tonight, going to be absolutely full, full of ministers and pe people that studied when you were teaching theology to them because a lot of them don't believe you have a testimony, and so they want to come and uh, prove for themselves. Uh, I thought that uh, this is going to be an interesting meeting. So in one sense, this is one meeting I'm glad to see some empty seats, because uh, that would have been a bit of a shock. But anyway, it's nice to be here, beautiful building, and I trust that the Lord will grace it with his presence tonight and help us as we come to think. Uh, to be honest, I don't really like testimony meetings. I'm glad people have a testimony, but I don't really like them because uh, you can get your eyes in the wrong place very, very easily. And I would much rather speak about Christ than speak about me in any way, even obliquely. But I've been asked to do a testimony and then I've been told, I've just learned tonight, maybe I was told this on the phone as well, but you see, I can plead that now I'm over 45, I can have a bad memory. That's just the waist measurement, by the way. But anyway, I have heard that I'm supposed to give pointers as to what we're supposed to be doing and advice for the future. No, I'm not going to do much of that tonight at all. If that comes up, it'll be completely unprepared and unexpected. Uh, so it's mostly a backward look, but not entirely. We're going to be reading in the New Testament in a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read the first uh, 12 verses of the chapter. Verse 13, sorry, the first 13 verses of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked <coughs> according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come 
he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Amen. The Lord will add his own blessing to the reading of his word for his own name's sake. Just let's take a moment to seek the Lord's face in prayer. Let's just bow our hearts before the Lord as we come to pray. Father in heaven, still us now in thy presence and grant us an overwhelming realization of the nearness of the Lord. We pray that tonight thou wilt hide man behind the cross and let none be seen save Jesus only. Thou dost know the state of every soul before thee. We pray that thou wilt use thy word to bring blessing to every one according to his need. We pray that if there be one without Christ, thou wilt bring salvation. And we pray, our God, that thy people may know the speaking voice of the Lord, guiding, directing. Thou dost know the problems that many believers face. Thou dost know sometimes the doubts by which they're plagued by the devil. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt meet these needs. And we pray that thou wilt have a word in season for every one of us as we wait in thy presence. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the merits of his precious blood. Amen. Amen. Many years ago, somebody, I have no idea who, had a brainwave, a brilliant idea for starting a testimony. And he said, I'm glad I have a testimony to give to the saving and keeping power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first time that was done, first time that was said, as I say, it was a stroke of genius and immediately focused the attention. But it was so popular that when I was growing up, just about every testimony that anybody gave started with those words. And it usually was because they didn't know how to get started and very quickly did they scoot over those words, I'm glad of a testimony to give the same King Paul of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that got them started. And you know, somehow or other, that genius idea became almost powerless. 
and it lost its effectiveness. So if I get up and start like that tonight, it would sound trite. But the reality is it's true. However overused those words have been. And I can honestly say I'm glad that I do have a testimony, whatever some ministers and students may have thought. Mind you, if they were going to come tonight because I give them a hard time, tomorrow night you'll need to put a big tent up outside when John Douglas comes because he's the man that made them plow through Hebrew and Greek and uh, exegesis and all those difficult things. And uh, some of them doubt if he's even human. But anyway, that's beside the point. As I say, I'm glad I do have a testimony. I love the words of the psalmist David in the 66th Psalm in verse seven, uh, 16. He says, come and hear ye that fear God and I will declare what he has done for my soul. That was David's invitation to his testimony. And that's what I would say tonight. Now, you know that preachers love to have outlines. In the Free Presbyterian Church, there is a, a disease that you must have not only an outline, but an alliterated outline. The letter P is the most popular, forgive the pun, but it is the most popular letter in the alphabet. And preachers get up and they, they preach about the promise and the price and the pathway, and you know, think of many P's you can get. I even know one preacher when he didn't have enough, enough words or enough, uh, he couldn't find the word for a fourth heading. He wanted four for some reason or other. He made up a word. Of course, he couldn't preach on it. He just left it unsaid because there was no such word and there was nothing to say about it. They all like to have alliterated outlines. I'll tell you a story about Mr. Barnes. He loves to tell stories about other people. But Mr. Barnes, as you know, was for years the minister in Hillsborough. Now, he's the master of alliteration. You, you give a text to Stanley Barnes and like that there, he'll give you three P's or three E's or three words that end in A-T-I-O-N or whatever. So you'll have an alliteration at the front of the back of the words. He's just a genius at those things. Well... After he retired, he was talking to a member of the uh, Hillsborough Church. And he was saying, you know, Mr. Barnes, I really loved your preaching. I, I, I loved the way, I loved the way you annihilated those texts. <laughs> he meant alliterated, of course, but uh, so we have kept and I have kept Stanley going ever since. You're the man who annihilates the texts every time you get up. Well, I'm not going to annihilate any text tonight, but I will use an outline. It's good to keep me in my track. My wife always hates it if I'm speaking off the cuff, she says, because you'll go on forever, whereas the outline will keep you to your, hopefully, to the same day you start it. Uh, it's also good for the congregation because they understand where the preacher's going. Tonight, we read second, or Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 13. And that is an outline of my testimony. Indeed, it's the outline of every Christian's testimony. 
for it spells out what I was, what I am, and what I will be. And in the simplest form, that has to be the area of everybody's testimony. It's mine, where I was. The opening verses said all. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh. The Greek word for worketh is that which gives us the English word energy or energize. The spirit that is now energizing in the children of disobedience. Children of disobedience, you could say, are disobedient children. They are the people who are living as if disobedience was their parent. They're living in open disobedience to God. Now, I never smoked in my life. I never drank alcohol in my life. I never did drugs in my life. I never swore. Never went to a dance. Of course, if I had, I'd probably have been sued for breaking some girl's leg because I have all the uh, agility of an elephant. But I didn't do any of those things. For as long as I can remember, I was in Sunday school and in gospel meetings. But that text is still, was still true and is still true of me as much as of any other person. I have knelt with people who were alcoholics to point them to Christ. I have the pleasure of kneeling with people whose lives were broken through drink or drugs or whatever and to see them change dramatically. But they were no more dead. You can't be deader than dead. Now, a corpse can be more corrupted than another, but you can't be deader than dead. And it's true of me, never swore, smoked, or whatever else, but yet I was dead in trespasses and in sins. I was born in sin. I was born to Christian parents, and therefore enjoyed the privileges of a Christian home. It was a very ordinary home. It was a working-class Belfast home, and that means in the years during and following World War II, giving things away there, yeah, I was born as the uh, phony war was over and the real war hotted up. And that was the greatest day in the history of the world in the 20th century, the 12th of August, 1940. Uh, so those were tough days. Money was tight and things were tough. You young people wouldn't understand this, but Second World War ended in 1945. By 1953, you still had to have coupons to buy bars of chocolate. They tried to take it off for a while and they had to bring it back in. Uh, a few young ladies had been there and wanted to get married. You had to go beg, borrow, and hopefully not steal other people's coupons to be able to buy an outfit for your wedding. 
That's the way it was. It was tough going. But I have to say, you know, I've often said this and our families talked about, you know, we were poor. The thing is, nobody ever told us. And so we were perfectly happy. And we never missed a meal. Our parents, one way or another, they, they definitely provided well for us. Now, my mother and father were an odd couple in many ways. Uh, they came from very different backgrounds. My mother's social background would have been quite a bit uh, higher than my father's. Uh, she found that out after she got married. And things that her, her father had been a leading chef. And she had been brought up in that atmosphere of fine cooking and all the rest of it. And he sent her out for pork that she had never heard of. And they call it ham knobs. Well, of course, the Belfast song was ham knobs. And uh, she had never heard of a ham knob. And he sent her, told her what shop to go to. And she went out to this shop. And uh, she said, I want ham knobs. <laughs> he says, how many do you want? She didn't know what to say. She says, oh, a quarter stone. <laughs> so you can see that they, they were definitely different. Uh, my mother had a much more refined upbringing. My dad suffered very deeply as a child. His mother died when he was, I think he was about six. His father was a drunkard, an alcoholic. Some years ago, I wrote an article in Truth For Youth. I didn't put my father's name on it. I used a slightly different name. He was Edward. I called the, the boy in the article Ted. My father was never called Ted, Ed or Ned, but never Ted. But it was a true story. Coming home on a Christmas Eve as a little boy, he thought, well, it's Christmas Eve, things will be different. And so hopefully he took a stocking and he hung it up. He got up in the morning all excited because he could see it was filled. When he got there, he found his drunken father had taken the dead ashes out of the, the cinders out of the fire and stuffed them in the stocking. He had a tough time. In those days, boys would have worked till they were 12 and then at 12, they could have gone into half-time school. That was half-time at school and half-time going out to work. And he did that. And then, as soon as he could, finish school. And he took himself off. Was really homeless for a while. Came back to live with his sister, but got to Scotland. He said he would never have made it. One of the first places he found shelter was a Roman Catholic nunnery. He knew nothing about the gospel, Romanism, Protestantism, or anything else. But that was his upbringing, tough going. He joined the British Army when the war was on, went and fought in World War I, was seriously injured, captured. Strange thing, you know. He carried a little New Testament in his pocket. It must have been one of his sisters gave it to him. He had never read a word of it. Didn't know anything about it. But when he was in the German prisoner of war camp, nothing else to do, he took out that testament and it might have well, as well have been in double Dutch, but he just took it out. At that time, a German doctor came in, spoke no English. He saw him with a New Testament and his face beamed and he says, good, good, good. And that doctor immediately started working, had my father repatriated. Just to skip a few years, when the Second World War came, my father couldn't join up not regularly because his wound wouldn't have allowed it. But 
he did join up where he wanted to do his bit. And he was on the home front. He was in a, a tent down near where the city airport would be today. But he was there and he was all alone. But this time he was a Christian, he was reading his Bible. The Church of Ireland chaplain came in. And my father was immediately delighted because now there's another Christian. So my father gave him his testimony. And that chaplain looked at him and he said, poor man just tipped his head and said another casualty of the great war. What a difference, what a difference. But you know, though he was without knowledge of the gospel, the Lord did a wonderful thing to save him. I think it was 1923, April 1923. That time he'd have been 27 years old. And uh, his brother at a barber shop, the Donegal Road in Belfast, it's a Friday night. And my dad was in the shop, the place was packed out with people. Many of you will know the Reverend Gordon Cook, you've heard his name. Well, his father came in and he said to my uncle Bob, he said, Bob, come on. They had arrangements for that night. Bob looked at him and said, Geordie, you can see the shop's full, I can't go. There's Ned, he'll go with you. And my father said, yeah, I'll go with you. Because the last he knew of Geordie Cook was a hard drinking sinner. In fact, he always told the story. He said, we were uh, carrying, you know, the big gas cylinders up toward the front line. And you had this catwalk of planks and it was mud to the oxters <laughs> either side of it. And as we were going up, the man in front of me carrying the front of it was six feet. My father was a giant of about five foot one. And so all the weight was there. And he could hear the men in front cursing and swearing because some idiot was coming the wrong way down the gangplank and some of them were falling off with their into the mud and it was Jory Cook and he came to my father and you Belfast people will understand the vernacular the rest of you may need to be educated in it but uh, uh, he came down to my father he said the bull net I hope this blankety blank war lasts forever I'm Batman and he mentioned to the, the senior officer he was serving he says all the whiskey you want so my father thought, oh, good goings, Geordie Cook will have some time tonight. But Geordie Cook had been saved. I haven't time to tell you his testimony. One of the most dramatic testimonies was Geordie Cook. And God made him one of the mightiest soul winners in Belfast. Amen. Great man, a great man. And a man of prayer and a man of power. But not long saved himself. Geordie took my father down. The Church of Ireland was running a mission in St. Aidan's. And uh, an officer from the church army was there, Captain Dixon, to preach. And that was the first time my father ever sat and listened to the gospel. And that night God spoke to him and God saved him. And God kept him ever since. He immediately got involved in that church, got involved in Sunday school work. The rector was a godly man, the Reverend Greer, 
and his curate was a godly fellow. And they were looking for another teacher. They needed a female teacher. They didn't have one and so for this particular class. And so they, they said to my father, do you know any young ladies would be fit for this? Well, he didn't. He said, well, I'll try to find out. So he asked his sister. And she says, oh, yeah, there's a, this girl. And she said where she lived. Says, she's a, but she's a Presbyterian. Well, my father knew no difference between Presbyterians were called black mouths, but he, she, he knew the difference between a Presbyterian black mouth and a Church of Ireland or anything else. So uh, he got in touch and asked her if she would think about the job, teaching Sunday school there. She said, I'll pray about it. And then she said she would. So obviously he had to take her to there and, of course, take her back home. And after a while, he realized she, he wanted her for more than a Sunday school teacher. We often laughed about how he proposed to her. I tell you, they're an odd couple. Uh, for some reason or other, he had lost, he, he lost the tops of two fingers in a, an accident where he was working. But uh, he said, we're walking down Donegal Pass. There was an undertaker's. It was there for years afterwards. And they stopped outside the undertaker's. And my father had this wonderful way of getting around to proposal. He said, he said to her, if you love me, say so. If you don't love me, say so. If you love me and you're too shy to say so, just squeeze my hand. And he held up his fingers and he says, you can see how she squeezed my hand, I lost half my fingers. <laughs> so that was it. And uh, they got married, I think in 1925. And they set up home. They had six children. I was number five. Now, if you've ever heard Dr. Paisley preach, you'll know that five is the number of grace. So either I was a gift of grace or it was a warning to my mother that she needed very special grace to put up with me. I'm not quite sure which, but I was number five. When my mother was, when she learned that she was expecting baby number five, she prayed a very specific prayer. She never told me what that prayer was. Never told me she'd even prayed it until the Lord called me into the ministry because when she found she was expecting a child, she didn't obviously know whether it'd be male or female, but she prayed the Lord would give her a son and make him a minister of the gospel of Christ. I grew up never knowing anything about that. As a kid, I had a very eclectic mix of exposure, church exposure. Uh, Sunday school, we went to the Brethren Sunday School in the Donegal Road. We went to the Church of Ireland Sunday School down, if you know the Donegal Road, down the Library Hill. There was a building there on the left. You went into it. Wherever there was a meeting, we were there. There was a gospel hall. It wasn't a Brethren Hall as such, but it, we called it the Hut. It was a place that did a great work in Matilda Street in Belfast, and my parents were very active in that uh, at that time. So I was there every Sunday. But then I had two older brothers who were brilliant musicians. I, I mean, really professional class musicians. One of them played a trombone, and he was one of the finest trombone players in the United Kingdom of any place, any standard, brilliant. 
In those days, the Salvation Army was very attractive to them, and so that's where they went, played in the band. Well, in due course, I thought I would go down, and I went to the Salvation Army, and I went to join the junior band, and you could see their eyes light up. Here's another Cairns, another musician. And they did something they didn't usually do. The very first night, they handed me an instrument to take home with me. You see, my trombone playing brother, Dave, he had picked up an instrument. I don't know where he got the ability, but he picked it up and he was able to play in no time without a lesson anywhere. He got lessons later, but he was able to do it. Here's another one. So they gave me this home with me. It was a cornet. I spent more time taking that thing apart and putting it together than I did practicing. I hated to practice. I wouldn't have mind being able to play like Dave as long as you didn't have to practice. Did they ever find out that music didn't run in the blood? I played in the junior band. I had a trombone. I had a trombone years later. People say, oh, you play the trombone? No. I can blow a trombone, but the sound, when I recorded it, it sounded like a frog with a bellyache. So I thought, no, that is not for me. But anyway, the great thing about going to the Salvation Army was we had a very good preacher, a Major Brown, and they brought over a team of American youth evangelists. And as they preached, as a little boy, I think I was eight years old, I came to Christ, dead in sins, but quickened together with Christ and became a Christian. And that's the second thing. That's what I am. There are two verses in Ephesians 2 that you should mark in your Bible. Each one starts with the word but. In verse 4, after saying, these are the depths of your depravity and your degradation, but God. Those two words are the fulcrum of all Scripture. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, where he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And then you have the words later down in verse 13. After saying, at that time, you were without Christ, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometime or at one time were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. <coughs> Verse 5 puts it, and I want you to get this. If you haven't noted it in your Bible, note it now. You were told I was going to do some teaching of theology. I'm not. But I am going to make this note for you in verse 5. It says, By grace ye are saved. And without getting technical, what it says is, Ye are having been saved. Now, that doesn't make very good English. It doesn't sound good. But what it means is, You are in a state of having been saved. This is what it means. You are now in a state of having been saved. And that's what I am. Now, I was just a boy. 
So there was no dramatic outward change. Now, let me address this because I know if there are young people here tonight and you've been saved as a young person, the devil may already have used this to trouble you and may do it again. You hear people get up and they, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And that's true. But you hear this about the the, the dramatic change that everybody can see. I had one young person come to me and say, but you know, people couldn't see any change in me. There was no dramatic outward change. Now the change inwardly is just as radical, just as real as in anybody else. Because you can't have a more radical change than being dead and then being brought to life. And that's what happens when you're saved. Some young people even wonder, would it not have been better if I'd gone away into the world for a while and then everybody would see the change? No, it wouldn't have been better to go into the world for a while. Rejoice that you're in Christ. The change is deep and real and radical and eternal. Thank God for that. So that's how I became a Christian. Of course, years go by and I became a teenager. And I have to be honest and say that the teenage years didn't start well. For a variety of reasons, but mostly I was privileged to gain entrance into what I think is a very, still a very prestigious boys' school. It certainly was then. I thought then, and I think now, the best grammar school in the country. And that was the Royal Belfast Academical Institution, INST for short. There was a time when INST was like a university. In fact, it was a question whether it would be INST or Queen's would be the national university. It had its own medical school and all that. That was before I was born, of course. But it was still a great school. There were the children of the rich and the aristocrats and all the rest of it. And here was I, just a little fellow from a very ordinary working class background. And I have to say it overwhelmed me. And mostly through fear, I became quite a compromiser. Many of my friends were decent lads. But through those early teenage years, there were some that were not a good influence. Yet when I look back on them, every time I set out to go astray with them, the Lord just blocked the pathway. You see, he was still answering a mother's prayers, prayers that I knew nothing about. Not long after I was saved, we moved house up to Craiga, which is sort of south Belfast, uh, I suppose more southeast, but that's Craiga. And after about three years there, I'd still go into the Salvation Army, he used to call me as I went out in my Salvation Army uniform and say, here's the wee man with the big hat. Uh, but the free church started in Mount Marion and we started attending. And there I heard good preaching. 
S.B. Cook became the minister. And I still think he was. And if he would only preach today, he'd be 90 in a very short time. He'd still be the Prince of Preachers. When I was about 16, my Sunday school teacher challenged me openly about coming out for Christ. Because I said, I've been compromising. Are you saved? We pray, we're praying for you. And I said, yeah, I'm saved. And that really was a challenge. And I did, by the grace of God, come out openly for Christ. But I was plagued with doubts. First of all, I'd been saved young. Second, that those years of just compromise and those doubts ate me up. There's times I, th I thought I was going to go mad. That went on until I was 17 and a half years old. It's almost coming up to 18. The first day of February 1958, say the first day, it was about two o'clock in the morning. I was in a late night prayer meeting and they were all praying in great liberty. And I was in deep bondage. Couldn't pray, didn't know what to pray. And as I struggled there through those hours, could have been two o'clock, three o'clock. We had these late night prayer meetings went on usually about from nine at night to four o'clock in the next morning. I said to the Lord, Lord, I don't even know what to pray. I don't know if I'm saved or not saved. If I pray, Lord, save me and I'm already saved, what sense does that make? If I pray, Lord, restore my backsliding or from backsliding, but I've never been saved, how could you answer that prayer? And so I was like a dog chasing its tail. And finally I came to the place where the Lord brought to my heart those words that so many people know off by heart. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And I remember praying, Lord, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. But I do know that I can trust the word of Jesus Christ, and he has said that he will not cast out any who come. I am coming. You know my need, even if I don't. You know my need. I am coming on the strength of the promise of Christ. And the Lord gave great assurance, which he has maintained from that day to this. As I said, I had been going to grammar school, was coming up to finishing that. And I was uh, accepted to go into Strand Millis to train as a school teacher. <laughs> then the Lord had pity on the kids and decided not to send me there. So I went out and worked for a couple of years in a large insurance brokerage business, most of it studying insurance. That's how you did it in those days for whether well, it was an accountant or an insurance broker, which is a very different thing from an insurance agent, by the way. Uh, I went there for a couple of years, and the Lord blessed me there. I was given a young lady to be my typist. The funny thing was, she knew far more about the job than I did. She could have made, dictated the letters to me rather than me to her. 
but she was my typist. Now, I had made a vow to God when I went into that office. I knew my immediate boss was a Christian. He later became a Presbyterian minister. I knew that the branch manager was an elder in a Presbyterian church and a very godly saved man. I knew I got the job as soon as I had the interview because he was saved. He knew that I was saved because he asked me. And lo and behold, he had also gone to Inst. So, I mean, the thing was sealed. <laughs> Talk about the old school tie. But I'd made a vow, Lord, there'd be no compromise. And the very first opportunity I get to make it known that I am a Christian. By your grace, I'm going to take it. Now, I've got to understand that we were in, our particular department was in accommodation that was merely temporary. It was part of the building of John Ross Auctioneers in May Street. So we weren't in the main office block that the others were in at that time. We did move there later. But when you went into it, my boss had his desk there. Another fellow who was fairly senior in the Marine Department, he had a desk, but he was off sick for a few months, so I didn't see him. The big boss of the department, he was in a separate office. And everybody else in the office, they were all girls. Now, I was scared out of my wits of them. I was very, very uncertain around these, these girls because there was some of them, my wife knew one of them in particular, very likable young lady, but worldly as the day was long. And here was my, my typist. So they were talking away and it was all worldly stuff. And they decided to bring me into the conversation, said, uh, you do this, you go there. I said, no. And they ended up like this. Well, you, don't, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't go to the cinema, you don't dance. What do you do? And it opened up the way that I was able to tell them about I was a Christian. And my typist went three times every week, every Sabbath day, to the Church of Ireland Church. She knew nothing about the gospel. She would, I always carried a New Testament in my pocket here. So, and by the way, we didn't steal our employer's time. Because if we didn't have our work done, at 5.15, you worked on until you had it done. That was all it was to it. But in breaks, it said, I'd blew out my testament. I'd be given in the gospel. She ended up bringing in the prayer book. <laughs> Soon the prayer book was set aside. And Aaron listened. Then she'd come up to the Mount Marion church. She heard Dr. Paisley preach. She said, I don't know what Dr. Paisley preached. I came that night to be saved. And the Lord saved her. And she's now with Christ. So it was a, a stamp of approval. I'd encourage every young Christian to take a stand wherever you are. And let the Lord use you. I, I was scared of people. It may surprise you that to a large extent, I still tremble to have to meet people. That's something the Lord has to give grace to overcome. But I was scared of people. And to the thought of 
speaking to people, etc., was for me a most off-putting thought. To go knocking doors for the church, that was terrible. But by the grace of God, I did it. To stand in my own street at an open-air meeting and testify, that was a trial. But by the grace of God, it was done. Remember in Mount Merion, we were giving out tracts and invitations. There's a street just opposite the church. And I went down that street and way down to the left-hand side, and I was giving these things out, got up to knock the door, and I came to this particular door, and the lady was standing in the middle of her pathway talking to a man, I think he was an insurance agent, actually, and uh, I spoke to her, gave her this, and she said, no, I wouldn't be interested, we're Roman Catholics. But she said, my husband might be interested because he likes thinking and talking about religion. So I said, well, would you like our, our minister to call? She said, yeah, that would be good. Let him call. He'd like to talk with him. Cut a long story short, Mr. Cook went there. That man was saved. His wife was saved. His family was saved. And all because a wee fellow whose knees were knocking in fear, with no confidence in me, went with a gospel invitation. The Lord can use you. Young Christian, the Lord can use you if you're willing to be used of him. I must hurry very quickly. In Mount Marion, uh, I really was challenged about service. I'm not going into the details of how it all came about, but I was challenged greatly about service. And I started praying, Lord, what will you have me to do? Now, I never wanted to be a preacher. As I say, I was afraid of meeting people to go into people's houses, to go there for Sunday dinner. You see, everybody in those days, when they cooked roast beef, they smothered the thing in stewed onions. I would have been physically sick. I couldn't take it. If they give you a ham sandwich, they have it clobbered with mustard. And to this day, that's one thing that would make me physically sick. So the idea of going there, man, that was awful for me. I didn't want to be a preacher. There was a time when I was about 12 years old, I was telling the Lord I, I was willing to be a missionary. I'd seen some missionary work, uh, and I was certainly willing to be a missionary. But the, really th the thing I really wanted to be, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I didn't only want to be a lawyer. I can remember as a wee fellow, <laughs> I don't think I knew what the words really meant, but I can remember praying very seriously that the Lord would make me a lawyer and make me the Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland. Well, obviously he didn't intend to do that and I didn't become a lawyer or anything like it. He had other plans. One Tuesday evening in Mount Marion, in a most dramatic manner, the Lord called me clearly to his service. I'll sum it up like this. I'd been praying before I went out to church. The Lord would show me, Lord, I must know the will of God. What do you want me to do? Now, if you knew Bert Cook, Bertie prepared meticulously for every service at which he preached. He had a little 
notebook and he kept it inside his Schofield Bible. When he opened up the Bible, the notebook would have been there and as he stood up in the prayer meeting, he wasn't in the pulpit, just stood up, he would stick very rigidly. I don't mean that he was a slave to notes, but Bertie believed in brevity. That didn't rub off on me. But he believed in brevity and he was the one when he closed the book that was it, it was over but as we went to the prayer meeting that night, the opening hymn and I can remember just where I was standing even, the end of the, the, the row and the Lord very definitely spoke to me, I don't mean that an audible voice came from heaven as it did to Saul of Tarsus, but it was just as clear in my heart if this man, if he says anything tonight about the need for ministers in the free church, you take it, it's for you. Well, Bertie preached on Psalm 90, the last couple of verses. And he closed the Bible and he closed his notebook. And he hadn't said a word. And then something I had never seen him do. He just started off on another track. And he said, there's something I want you to pray about. As a church, we have many opportunities to go and establish works, and we do not have a single student for the ministry. I want you to pray that God will meet that need and raise men for the ministry. That night, the Lord, my heart rose, spoke to Mr. Cook. He agreed entirely. Of course, being me, I wanted the Lord to do it all over again, and he wouldn't do it. Because if I wanted a second time, I'd have been looking for a third time and a fourth time. And he taught me that my faith had to be in him and his word, not in some ongoing experience. So... He called me, applied to the presbytery. Believe it or not, they accepted me. I was 20 years old. Well, I actually hadn't reached 20 when they accepted me, but I was 20 years old when I started in the theological hall. Three months later, I was placed in charge of the church in Dunmurray because there was nobody else. I thought of it, and they thought I was going for a six-month trial. And I was that green and that dumb, I didn't realize that if I fail here, I'm finished. There was nowhere else to go. But those six months became four years. And the Lord blessed Dunmurray. When I went, we'd have, they'd been having 17 people on a Sunday morning. Church was wrecked. Hadn't been one unsaved person in the building in over a year and a half. They'd been reduced to meeting in a tiny little prayer room. And over the years, the Lord saved some souls. When I left, I kept a record. Joan thinks we still have it somewhere, but I kept a record of the people who were attending. And our Sabbath attendance was reaching almost 100 people. Fred will tell you in Dunmurray, that was a definite work of God. But the Lord then moved. 
Nine months before the church in Cabra, which is outside Balamone, became vacant, as I was praying, I was challenged that I knew I would be the minister of Cabra. By that time, Joan and I were going together. She was a member of the Murray Church. She also worked for Dr. Paisley in the Gospel Telephone Ministry. And uh, I knew before I ever asked her out, we were going to get married. I've often told her she must have been praying, but uh, uh, I knew that was going to happen because I always remember the prayer meeting. Joan will kick me for saying this, but it's true. She was always a great prayer warrior. And as she was praying, the Lord really dealt with my heart. Now, I was attracted to her, but it has to be more than that. You have to have the will of God in this. And the Lord very definitely made it clear to me, this is to be your wife. Do I thank the Lord for that? I said to her that the Lord was dealing with me about Cabra. She was upset, not upset in the sense of rebelling. But, you know, in those days, this was, what, 1960, early 64. And... Uh, when you came from Belfast, anybody outside of Belfast was the country. People in the country didn't have running water. They didn't have flush toilets. That's what the Belfast, actually the truth is that the country people were a thousand miles ahead of the city slickers. But oh, to leave home, to leave the church in Dunmurray, go out to Canberra. I said, Joan, I think the Lord's only testing me because I didn't want to go either. But sure enough, the call came and away I went. I was there for 15 years, wonderful years. God blessed us in a wonderful way. If you'd been in the free church in those days, you'd realize two names went together, Cabra and Cairns. They went together. You were not going to separate them. And I tell you that in 15 years, I never lost one single member except through death. Some of the young people who weren't members, very few, mind you, but some moved away for university training or something like that, but we never lost a single member. When I tell you that we didn't have even a majority vote on our session committee, that was not the way it worked. So... This was family to me. And yet the Lord definitely moved me on to Greenville. Maybe if time permits, we'll say something about that. That's what I am. Paul said, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm saved and I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Privileged to serve him. Can I say to you that Paul used various words to say he was a servant? Let me highlight two. One is a word that means I'm a slave. Now remember what that meant in those days. A slave had less rights than a dog. He had no rights at all. His master could do with him whatever he wanted to do just because he wanted to do it. He had the power of life and death, 
direction, whatever. It was all in his hands. Paul says, I'm a slave. I want to tell you, every one of us tonight is a slave. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to grace, a slave to Satan or a slave to Christ. One or the other. Paul said, I'm a slave. But there's another word. It's a beautiful word that he uses. It means an oarsman. You see, in those days, the Roman galleys would get out into the sea and they would carry the Roman soldiers and the Roman navy went here and there pursuing the, the empire's interests and furthering them. But how did they propel? They had no big engines. They didn't have horsepower. They had manpower. And they would have the slaves on the lower deck and they would each be at an oar, usually chained to it. And they'd be pulling along. They were the under rowers. They were the oarsmen. What were the oarsmen doing? They were propelling the ship as the captain directed. And that's the word that Paul used of himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. To be rowing. I can't propel the whole ship. But I can take an oar. And row, as it were, at the direction of the captain, the direction of the master of the ship. What I was and what I am. Time will not allow me to tell you about the days, those days and the early days in the free church. People talk about the old days. They're usually people who came later. The old days were tough. They were hard, hard going. Very hard going. But there did come a change. Most people think it was 1966, and they're wrong. Actually, if you go back to 1962, we had the visit of a great Indian Christian by the name of Jordan Khan. My little church in Dunmurray, our prayer meeting was the first place that Jordan Khan came, came to preach. I remember it was a Halloween night. And I was most unhappy that he was coming. Dr. Paisley was the senior minister, which we never saw much of him, but he wanted to put Jordan Kahn in. I said, oh, this is typical of the big man. He, he's got this man and probably can't make out a word he says, but hardly understand him. Uh, and he has met him at the International Council of Christian Churches over in Europe, and he brought him here and he fobs him off on me. Man, was I ever wrong. Jordan Kahn spent eight hours out of every 24 with an open Bible on his knees before God. And I want to tell you, when you prayed with Jordan Kahn, you went places in prayer you never knew existed. I'll never forget that night. That night changed my ministry. Such was the power. He went on to speak in martyrs. Well, it wasn't martyrs then, it was the old Ravenhill Church. And in those prayer meetings, as he spoke and then the people got down, there was a mighty moving of God. There was a real reviving. Pastor Mullen came later in a gospel mission on the coattails of those meetings from Jordan Cairns. Willie Mullen at times was very sick during that mission. At times he couldn't even come to preach. Other times when he got up to preach, his face was like the face of a corpse. He was not feeling well at all. 
But night by night, souls were saved. And when he couldn't come to preach, Dr. Paisley didn't preach. He didn't bring anybody else in to preach. I remember one night in particular, he said, brother, we'll just have a prayer meeting. And sinners were saved in the prayer meeting. There was a move in 1962. In 64, Dr. Paisley had a, a very great mission in the tent in Donna Many souls were saved. God was stirring. Later in that year, I had my very first gospel mission in tandem with Brian Green from London. We were down in Port of Oge. He started, had to go back. I went and did the harvest services and Brian came back for another few days and then had to go away and I continued for another four weeks, I think it was. Done. Port of Oge was on its last legs. Again, it was down to a handful of people meeting. But God moved, and almost 40 people were saved in that mission. It's a move of God. And of course, 19, I went to Cabra in 1965. The opening mission was only two people saved. I have to say I was disappointed because I'd just come from the great gospel mission in Port of Ogie. I thought it would continue, but only two people saved. But the Lord knew what he was doing. One of them was a 16-year-old girl. I didn't know that in a very short time that we lassie would be in eternity. The mission was all important to her. The other was a, a fellow. And you said he's a rough diamond. And he was. But I want to tell you, God used him to bring people into that mission who vowed they, their foot would never step in over the step in the Cabra church, but they came in. He's still in that church. He married a girl who was a Roman Catholic and she saved. There's a whole wide family of them there. God moved one by one and brought them into Christ. Those were Good days. 66 came. You know about, I'm not going to give you the history of the, the protest and the, the imprisonment. Those were days of great meetings, great prayer meetings. I want you to understand this, however. Some of you, and some of you older people are the worst culprits. You say, oh, the free church isn't what it used to be. Well, sure, you're not what you used to be. Otherwise, you'd still be in nappies. And the idea is, oh, if only we would do the same things as we did then, we'd have the same results. Who ever told you that? The Bible doesn't tell you that. God didn't bless us because we were so good and so great. God blessed us out of Pure, sovereign grace. Now he can do it again. And we should pray that he will. We had great prayer meetings. We had some great gospel missions. Many conversions. Many a protest. Battling against the World Council of Churches. Many a hilarious moment. Remember we had a big protest was going down to the Belfast Telegraph. It was, it hated the free church. It was obscene the things that they did. 
against the free church. And we were going down to protest against it. Big march down Royal Avenue. Dr. Paisley striding out, he was Martin Luther all over again. And he had with him his hammer and his nails and he had this thing. He was going to kneel to the, the door of the Belfast Telegraph just like Luther had nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Well, he got there. Where's that hammer? Up. They were glass doors. <laughs> So obviously, <laughs> turn to Jim Hamer, brah, brah, go and get some sellotape somewhere. Where you get sellotape in Royal Avenue at uh, eight o'clock on a weeknight, I have no idea anyway. But we had that. We had other tremendous uh, times. You girls are like this. You, you know, you could have a laugh in the free church when you least expected it, even in very serious things. I remember we had one presbytery meeting and there was, a lot of, there was a lot of concern, and rightly so. There was a lot of concern about the dress standards of some of the women and the young women in the free church. Those were the days of the miniskirt, which is back in fashion, I see. And uh, Ivan Foster, those days Dr. Paisley meetings were in the Ulster Hall. I don't know if you've ever been in the Ulster Hall, but <laughs> Ivan Foster said, Mr. Moderator, he says, we have to do something. He says, you sit in the Ulster Hall, he says, you can't look anywhere. If you look to your right, you're looking at some woman's thighs. If you look to your left, you're looking at some woman's thighs. If you look straight across, you're looking at some. If you look down, he says, this has to be something. And Dr. Paisley, he, he was most indignant at this. This is my church you're talking about. He said, brother, there's no many skirts in my church. And then he made the biggest guff Brother, if there's any mini skirts in my church, I would like to see them. <laughs> well, you can see at that point, all serious debate came to an absolute end. As I say, you can always get a laugh when you least expected it. But some notable victories, Dr. Paisley at Oxford University, they held up for all Britain to see, the little wafer that the Pope would have people believe becomes God. I actually heard a Roman Catholic preach. He was preaching in Spanish. In those days, I could be much more proficient in Spanish, but it was in Spain. He held it up and he said, this is your God. That night, John St. John Steve was a Tory MP, actually called for Dr. Paisley to be killed. Of course, he'd say, I was only joking. In the context of Ireland, you never say that. There are other great ones I don't have time to get into. Our young people had a wonderful protest against Jesus Christ Superstar. Very effective. Those were great days. We moved from Cameron to Balamoney. The Lord blessed. In 1976, we had a great mission. We had a prayer meeting, lasted 28 hours. Started on a Tuesday night, eight o'clock. We did something I would commend to you. We took this over, at least our ladies took it over in Greenville, did something similar with great effect. I said, I want you to draw up a list of people that you are bringing into the mission or you want to bring into the mission. Don't just say, I want you to pray for my great uncle. 
who lives in Australia. That's for another time. If there's somebody that you're working on, you're willing to go and invite them, put their name down. And we guarantee that there's somebody who will pray with you. If you will pray every day, we will pray with you. We had a whole list of names. We also set up a rota that we'd pray, the ladies on Tuesday would go home before midnight. The men, some of them would stay through to two or three. Some of them had to start work at five o'clock, six o'clock. So at times you'd have two or three or four. But right through the night and right through the following day to 10 o'clock the following night, more, we had the prayer meeting going. Some people spent 13 or 14 hours in that prayer room. We went down that list. It was amazing to see God moving. And dozens of souls were saved. It was a great time. Also at that time, I had the privilege of producing the greatest used, I'm not saying the greatest, but the greatest used little booklet the free church has ever had. It was called originally Christ is the Answers, now called A New Beginning. Dr. Paisley looked at that. He said, Kearns, that's the best thing you ever did or ever will do. So I could retire right away. He got hundreds of them, hundreds of them for his own church and martyrs. He encouraged his people to take them, give them out. And hundreds of people professed faith in Christ as we spread those. I would say there must be at least half a million of those that have been given out to this point over the years. And many have been saved as a result. It came as a shock when I got a call to Greenville. I'd already told them, no, I'm not going, but the Lord overruled that. And again, in a way that by American law should not have happened at all, by the normal use of American law, it shouldn't have, not saying it was illegal, but there was a way that things were normally done. By that way, we would not have got in when we did, but we got in. The Lord took us there, leaving Cabra, Palamone was difficult. One of our ladies said, this is worse than the death of my mother. And we knew that. We got to Greenville. And I have to say, we never were once homesick because the Lord has sent us there. We're in the will of God. We have churches in Canada. Frank McClellan had been there before I went. We have churches in Canada and churches in the United States. We definitely need a visitation of God there. But the Lord did some great things for us. Our church in Greenville supported that work financially, as all the churches, we set up our own theological hall, now the Geneva Reformed Seminary. We've seen young men trained, called and trained for the ministry. We've seen people saved, we've seen missionaries go out 
We have missionaries in Mexico. A young man from our church there is doing a great work. Is a church that has grown well and seeing people saved and discipled and growing up to be elders in the church. We have two men in down in Mexico in the southern part on the coast in the area of Veracruz. If you read about Mexico, Veracruz is one of the most dangerous places in all of Mexico for the drug cartels. And they're doing a great work. You talk about old-fashioned missionary work, where when you leave any transport, either mechanical or four-legged behind you, and you trek for hours through the mountains to get to a people, Roman Catholic, by name, but they've never heard the gospel, and you bring the gospel to them. That's what they're doing. So the Lord is blessed. What I was, what I am, what I'm going to be, in the ages to come, the Lord will show the exceeding riches of his grace toward us. That's what he's going to do. That's what we will be. We're going home to glory soon. I often say I'm not going to live very long. I know that. I can't. Doesn't matter how long I live, it can't be for very long. But I'm going home to glory. The hymn writer said, We're going home to glory soon to see the city bright to walk the golden street of heaven and bask in God's own light. But some of you are out of Christ. You're held by many a snare. We cannot leave you lost and lone. We want you over there. Because you see, unless this is your testimony, what I was, dead in sin, what I am, Saved by grace. Unless that's your testimony, you can never say what I will be is with Christ, which is very far better. If you're not a Christian, make sure you gain this testimony. Nothing else counts. If you are a Christian, it may seem remote to you now, although there's a lot of you in your my age group, but some of you younger folk may seem very remote to you. When I talk about what happened way back in 1960, it's just like yesterday. In comparison to eternity, it's the blink of an eye. It's only what's done for Jesus will last. Say I had become a lawyer. Say even if God had blessed me with the brains that he hasn't blessed me with, Say I'd even become a great lawyer. And I died a celebrated lawyer. What good would that do me in a lost sinner's hell? Or even if I was a Christian lawyer, if that's all I was... Now, I know God can use Christian lawyers, and some Christian lawyers are doing a tremendous work for the cause of Christ. 
So don't misunderstand me. But if I was simply living to be a Christian, but mostly to be a lawyer, standing at the judgment seat of Christ to say, well, Lord, I won that big case or that big case, so what? But if, like the great Samuel Rutherford, who said, if one soul from Anwath will meet me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. If I can say that, life was worth living. Life for Christ is worth living. Trust the Lord will bless this. I'm sorry to have gone on too long, but I only did one third of what this man asked me to do. And uh, so we will uh, leave it there. And I trust the Lord will bless it to you and give you grace to go out knowing him and being able to say what I was, what I am, and what I will be by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee for saving grace. We remember the words of Seth Sykes, old chorus, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and so free. Amen. Bless our fellowship now, and as we separate, part is with thy blessing. Keep us in the fear of God, which is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. Be our portion now. And until the Lord Jesus either calls us home or comes again in all his glory, we ask these things, giving thee our thanks. In Jesus' precious name, amen.